to the back of your hymn book, page 874. 874 and Lord's Day 6. Then we'll open God's Word to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2. I ask you to respond to the questions that are asked of you in Lord's Day 6. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Why must he also be true God? Then who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time a true and righteous man? How do you come to know this? Well, let's turn together to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. We're going to focus on verses 14 through 18 of Hebrews 2 in connection with Lord's Day 6. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard it, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, to, in bringing many sons 
to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Verse 14 and verses 14 through 18 is our text. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. I encourage you to keep it open there in verses 14 through 18. Why did Jesus come to earth and take upon himself our humanity? Why did the eternal Son of God come in the form of a man? As you know, in the history of the church, there have been those who have denied the full divinity of Jesus, like today's Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Denying that Jesus is true God is a fatal error. Our catechism rightly says that he had to be true God so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. You can't deny the deity of Christ and still be a Christian. However, there have also been those who have denied the true humanity of Jesus that he had a, a real physical body or a true human nature. Well, the book of Hebrews clearly affirms both the full divinity of Jesus and the full humanity of Jesus. Today, from Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18, in connection with Lord's Day 6, we want to consider the purpose of the Incarnation. From our text, I direct your attention to three things. Our Lord Jesus had to be made like his brothers. He had to share in our humanity, number one, to destroy the enemy. Number two, to release the enslaved. And number three, to assist the enticed. First of all, our Savior had to become man, made like his brothers, to destroy the enemy. Look with me in your Bibles to the 14th verse. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, shared in their humanity, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. One thing that all the children of God have in common is that we have flesh and blood. 
The ESV says the children share in flesh and blood. In other words, we all have a human nature. We are all creatures who are finite, mortal, and frail. Both kings and slaves are flesh and blood. But then we read in verse 14b that he himself likewise, that is, Christ himself, shared in the same. The eternal, almighty Son of God, creator of all things, took on our human nature. Without ceasing to be God, he shared in our humanity. That word, you see it there, shared, referring to Christ, carries the idea of taking hold of something that is not, not naturally one's own kind. Taking hold of something that is not naturally one's own kind. We are, by our very nature, flesh and blood. Christ was not, by nature, flesh and blood. He took hold of that which, he did, not, which did not naturally belong to him. He added to himself our human nature. Now, why would the creator of the heavens of the earth leave heaven's glory and the adoration of angels for earth's humanity? Why did he become man? Look again at verse 14b. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. You'll recall that after Adam and Eve disobeyed the word of the Lord and heeded the words of the serpent, God came to them and spoke some prophetic words to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head, and you shall strike his heel. Already in the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, we hear the suggestion that this promised deliverer would be human, the descendant of the woman, and yet more than human, in that he would be able to overcome the devil. Someone would come who was both human and more than human, the seed of the woman, yet able to crush the head of the serpent. This theme is gradually and progressively unfolded throughout the Old Testament. A deliverer would come who would be both human and divine. The patriarchs and prophets anticipated his coming, and the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law pointed to his coming. God finally fulfilled his great promise. Jesus, the seed of the woman, came to engage in mortal conflict with the serpent. He came as the divine human savior to destroy the devil, to crush his head. The purpose of him coming in the flesh was that he might die. Now, congregation, from a human perspective, the death of Christ must have appeared to be one of the greatest tragedies imaginable. How was Jesus' death perceived by many of his contemporaries? What they saw was a rejected man disowned by his own nation, abandoned by his own disciples, and executed by the power of Rome. His life ended in obvious failure. A humiliated, broken, rejected man. While on the cross, he even cried out that God himself had forsaken him. 
His followers had thought that he would be the great liberator of Israel, that he would deliver them from the hand of their oppressor. But instead of dying in the struggle against the enemies of Israel as a hero of war, he died in apparent weakness and disgrace. In his death, the hopes of many were crushed. What a waste, what a shame, what a hopeless cause. From all appearances, the powers of darkness were victorious. They had overcome. It seemed as though Jesus was a defeated, discouraged failure. But thanks be to God, this was not so at all. Jesus was not conquered at the cross. He was the conqueror. There, the same human nature that had sinned was able to make satisfaction for sin, question answer 16. At the cross, a true and righteous man made satisfaction for unrighteous men. At the cross, Jesus conquered death, and he who had the power of death was destroyed. The strong man, Satan, was disarmed, bound, and robbed of his spoil. Congregation, the death of Jesus was not merely a tragic accident. The very purpose of his incarnation was that he might die. Taking on our human nature qualified him to suffer and die as a man for men. Human nature which sinned must pay for its sin. Flesh and blood enabled him to suffer and die vicariously. That is in the place of others. The Savior and the saved had to be of the same nature. Having taken upon himself flesh and blood, he was able to die. You see, as God, he could not die. He had to assume another nature, a nature that was capable of suffering and death. Having assumed our nature, he willingly laid down his life so that the forces of darkness would be rendered powerless. That which appeared to be a degrading tragedy was in reality a glorious triumph. By his death, our Lord stripped away the power of the devil and took away from him his most terrible weapon. The greatest enemy of God and man was conquered. But brothers and sisters, what does it mean? What does verse 14 mean when it says that the devil had the power of death? The devil had the power of death. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it does not mean that before the incarnation, the devil had the absolute power to inflict physical death. The giving of life and the inflicting of death were never outside God's sovereign control. How then are we to understand that the devil had the power of death? Well, Scripture says that death is the result of what? Sin. The wages of sin is death. The devil was the first sinner and the first one to tempt others to sin. He seduced our first parents and brought them under the curse of death. In John 8, verse 44, our Lord declared that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. 
Through his subtlety, he brought about the downfall of Adam and Eve. By doing so, the sentence of death was passed to all their posterity. Ever since that terrible day, as the devil deceives people with the lie, turns them away from the truth, and draws them into sin, he may be said to have the power of death. Sin brings death, physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. Apart from the work of Jesus Christ, Satan would lead us all down the pathway to death. We could not stand against him. Death is Satan's great weapon. For if he can hold men in darkness until they die, he knows that their opportunity to be saved is gone forever. The congregation of the good news is that Christ was made like his brothers, shared in our humanity, and through his own death, he destroyed him with the power of death. Through the cross, Satan's tyranny is broken. The devil still lives and constantly tries to lead us into sin, but his power is rendered ineffective. He cannot prevail against the children of God. We read in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. That he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is the champion who defeated our hellish antagonist on the cross. That word destroy in verse 14 does not signify annihilation, but rather to render powerless. To render powerless. Satan's power is minimized in the lives of God's children. Therefore, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Those who believe in Jesus Christ have the assurance of victory. He has stripped the great enemy of his power. By his death, he disarmed principalities and powers and made a public, public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, Colossians 2.15. Satan desires your death in the fullest sense of the word. Physical, spiritual, and eternal. But through the cross, his hands are tied. The curse of death which we deserve has been laid upon Christ. By paying the penalty for us, our Lord took the weapon of death out of the hands of Satan. And so, congregation, if you have trusted the crucified Jesus, you don't need to fear the power of the devil. What do we confess in Lord's Day 1, children? What do we confess in Lord's Day 1? He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and what? Has delivered me from the tyranny, the power of the devil. Jesus was made like his brothers that he might devastate the enemy. He came into the world as a man to destroy the power of a tyrant, to overthrow Satan's dominion. That's point number one. Then secondly, from verse 15, we see that our Savior shared in our humanity that he might release the enslaved. 
Look at verse 15. By his death, he might destroy the devil, verse 14, and, verse 15, release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, held in slavery by their fear of death. Christ came not only to destroy the enemy, but also to release the enslaved from the fear of death. The one thing that can terrify people more than anything else is death. Death. How many people push the thought of death as far as possible from their minds through work, busyness, family, entertainment, travel, and so on? One theologian said that Death is not merely an event that awaits us, but a power that rules us now, the leaven of futility that permeates all our achievements and denies our soul's peace and contentment. Jesus shared in our humanity and gave himself over to death so that you may be released from this bondage. The fear of death can be a lifelong bondage. The unregenerate, unbelieving person cannot escape it. For him, death is a great mystery, passing into the unknown and facing the unwanted. The believer, on the other hand, is freed from this terror. The Apostle Paul could say with confidence, with certainty, and with boldness, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is victory over death. Therefore, the believer can be released from fear. Yes, death continues to be very unnatural, for it is the result of sin, but the believer is no longer enslaved by fear. Jesus Christ was made like his brothers so that he might face the terrors of death. He faced the judgment of an angry God upon sin so that we could be released. Already in the Old Testament, David understood these things when he wrote Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. For the psalmist's death was not cause for fear. He knew that Yahweh was with him and not against him. Yahweh would hold him, keep him, and comfort him. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The apostle knew that death was not a loss. It was no longer an enemy. Congregation, how many of us would be able to say that? Do we view death as gain? How many of us here today view death as gain? For the unsaved, death is the door to eternal misery. The door to everlasting damnation. But for the believer, death is the door which releases us into the presence of God. It ushers us into the presence of Jesus Christ. 
Perhaps the reason we Christians do not always share the certainty of the apostle is because we don't always trust our divine human mediator and, true, and, and live in close fellowship with him the way we ought. We easily become very attracted to the world, don't we? To the things of our present existence. We easily lose touch with the promises of God. And then the fear of death tends to wash over us once again. As long as Peter kept his eyes on Christ, he had no fear of the wind and the waves. He was able to walk on the water. But the moment he looked at the waves and listened to the boisterous wind, he was afraid and began to sink. Jesus said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? When the terrors of death take hold of us, we need to be reminded of these words. Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Why do you put yourself back in the slavery of fear? Jesus came to liberate the enslaved. Listen again, congregation, to what the apostle said in 2 Corinthians 5. We are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Well-pleased, well-pleased. Paul had been released from the bondage of the fear of death. Having understood the work of his divine human mediator, he became persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even death could separate him from the love of God. The human body of our Lord, which hung from the cross and was laid in the tomb, did not remain there. His human body was resurrected, flesh and blood, our humanity, resurrected. And just as his human body was resurrected, so the bodies of all his brothers will come forth from the grave. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18, we hear these words of our Lord Jesus. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. It is the risen Jesus who holds the keys of death. Therefore, the believer, while he lives in the midst of death, can nevertheless live in the joy of faith. Liberation from death and the judgment is not just a future vague hope. It is a present reality. It's a present reality. In Christ, it is so certain that Martin Luther once said, he who fears death or is not willing to die is not sufficiently Christian. As yet, such people lack faith in the resurrection and love this life more than the life to come. Kelvin echoed similar sentiments when he said, It is from this fear that Christ has released us by undergoing our curse and thus taking away what was fearful in death. 
Calvin goes on to say, although we must still meet death, let us nevertheless be calm and serene in living and dying when we have Christ going before us. If anyone cannot set his mind at rest by disregarding death, that man should know that he has not yet gone far enough in the faith of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, those, are, those words of Luther and Calvin are rather strong, aren't they? How many Christians have times when we fear death? And yet, what does Scripture say? Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. This biblical truth should have a profound effect on the way we view our own death, but also as we view the deaths of brothers and sisters who die in the Lord. The funeral of a Christian is a time of mourning only insofar as we desperately miss their presence with us. Otherwise, the funeral of a Christian can be a time of humble worship, for we have been liberated from the chains of the fear of death. Dear friends, I ask you, are any of you here enslaved by the fear of death? Are any of you here this afternoon enslaved by the fear of death. If so, I exhort you to look to Christ who alone can break the chains. Then thirdly, our Lord Jesus had to share in our humanity not only to destroy the enemy and to release the enslaved, but also that he might assist the enticed. Verses 16 through 18, assist the enticed. Have a look with me to verse 16. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. There's no promise in Scripture of salvation for angels. Our Lord did not come to redeem angels. He came to redeem people. Because he came to redeem people, he did not take upon himself the form of an angel. He took upon himself the form of a man, flesh and blood. Jesus came for Abraham's descendants, the seed of Abraham, to bring deliverance. Who are Abraham's descendants? Who are Abraham's descendants? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, verse 7, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Galatians 3, 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. Jesus came to help Abraham's spiritual children. He identified with them. Verse 17 explains to us the reason for this. Let's keep reading at verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brothers, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To give aid to the descendants of Abraham, Christ had to become like his brothers in every way, sin accepted. To assume his role as a merciful and faithful high priest, he had to share in our humanity. It was his likeness to his brothers that qualified him to act as our great high priest. Jesus could not have represented men before God 
offering himself as a sacrifice on our behalf unless he first became our fellow man. To represent us, he had to identify with us. His becoming a man was necessary to him becoming a high priest. A priest must be one with those whom he represents before God. Jesus is a merciful high priest because by his own sufferings and temptations, he can sympathize with his people. Jesus is also a faithful high priest in that he endured to the end without wavering. Through the work of this high priest, satisfaction was ensured for his people. The end of verse 17 says, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, some translations say atonement, but the better translation is to make propitiation. What is propitiation? Propitiation is the appeasing of God's holy anger and righteous wrath. It means to turn aside the righteous anger of God that we deserve by an offering of sufficient value. It is the offering of a sacrifice or gift of suitable cost in order to pacify the wrath of God. As the high priest of the Old Covenant entered the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle blood for himself and the people, For the purpose of turning aside the the wrath of God, so Jesus Christ performed priestly service before God by offering himself and thus propitiating, turning aside God's wrath against our sin. The broken and hostile relationship between God and man is restored through this merciful and faithful high priest. But then we also see that Christ was made like his brothers in every way, not only to bring about reconciliation between God and man, but also to help those who are reconciled in their times of temptation. Look at verse 18. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid to help those who are tempted. You see, Jesus shared our humanity so that he could feel what you feel. He came not only to save you, but also to sympathize with you in your earthly struggle. He came to experience what you experience. He was at all points tempted as you are, yet he remained without sin. Congregation, suppose you're, run, you're, you're training for a grueling race. A run so brutal and challenging that you will undoubtedly be tempted to quit and go home. Don't you think it would be of immense benefit to have someone come alongside you who has already successfully completed the race? Someone who knows the demanding challenges, someone who has been there, someone who has been through it himself and is able to help you when you're tempted to quit? Jesus is just such a person. He is ideally suited to help you in your temptations and struggles because he has been through them himself.
Now you, as his people, can come to him in your time of need and you could say, Lord, you know. You know what you went through when you were here. You know the power of temptation and the struggles of living in a sinful and twisted world. You know what it's like to walk through that dust, grime, slime, muck, and stench of this fallen world. Lord, help me to overcome as you overcame. Help me to stand as you stood. Help me to be faithful as you were faithful. Congregation, you have a high priest who understands your plight. He tabernacled among us in the flesh. He experienced hunger and thirst, weariness and sorrow. He faced what you face. He met with demonic attack. Your high priest knows what you go through every day. Because he was tempted, he's now ideally suited to aid you. He serves as a sympathetic savior. Your mediator stands ready to help. When you're tempted, you may call out to him and receive his sympathy and active support. You don't have to feel ashamed when you call out for he understands perfectly. He empathizes because he himself suffered when he was tempted. The remembrance of his own sorrows makes him sensitive to the needs of his people. When you have a problem, you can lay it before your merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus felt what you feel. He even felt it to a greater degree. We never experience the full measure of temptation as Jesus did, for we are sinful. Because Jesus never succumbed to temptation, he experienced the full force of it. When we experience temptation, we're like a leper who gets pricked with a needle. He doesn't feel much of it because his nerve endings are practically dead. But when Jesus experienced temptation, he's like a healthy man who gets pricked with a needle. A healthy man feels the pain. He feels it to a much greater degree than does a leper. When we feel the pain of temptation, we can know that our Lord felt it much more. He is now able to come to your side and assist you. Through all his trials, sufferings, and temptations, he remained a righteous man. He took the full measure of every temptation and remained victorious over them all. And now, he does not stand aloof and indifferent to your needs. He knows when you're hurting and when you're weak, he knows your pain. You can call out to him not only for salvation from sin, but for sympathy and trials. In chapter 4, verse 16, the writer of Hebrews said, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come to the throne of grace, congregation. Come to your divine human mediator. Come to him who by his death has crushed the head of the serpent. You will obtain mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. 
Jesus shared in our humanity. He was made like you so that he might destroy the enemy, release the enslaved, and assist the enticed. Identifying with his people in their temptations and serving as a sympathetic savior. As our catechism says, this is the mediator who was first revealed in paradise. This is the mediator who was proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets. This is the mediator who was foreshadowed by the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law. And this is the mediator that you must look to, believe in, trust, and obey. Through him, death is swallowed up in victory. If you do not believe in him, your whole life will be subject to the bondage of the fear of death. And when death arrives, your greatest fears will be confirmed when he says to you, depart from me, you curse it, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Don't turn away from your mediator, but come, come to the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help from him who was made like his brothers. The hands that were nailed to the cross are now stretched out to you in sympathy and love. The hands that were pierced are willing to help you. They're willing to help you. Congregation, Jesus conquered the devil, releases the enslaved, and serves as a sympathetic savior. He received the judgment due to your imperfect humanity so that you may receive the blessings due to his perfect humanity. He received the judgment due to your imperfect humanity so that you may receive the blessing due to his perfect humanity. He became like you so that you may become like him. What a gift. What a blessing. What a savior. Amen? Let us pray. Lord, it is hard for us to fathom that our Lord Jesus became like us. That he took our humanity in order that we may be redeemed. That through him the victory is won. That through him we may experience everlasting blessedness. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for receiving the judgment, the judgment due to our imperfect humanity, so that we may receive the blessing due to your perfect humanity. We thank you for the wonderful promises. Lord, we pray that we may live, even as the apostle lived, even as David lived, free from the fear of death. 
knowing that our Savior has won the victory. Lord, if there's anyone here who thinks they can live without this divine human mediator, we pray, show them their folly, show them their sin, show them their arrogance before it is too late. Bring us all before your throne. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of life's temptations and trials and times when we feel overwhelmed by the wickedness around us, Lord, may we all turn to that sympathetic mediator, the one who understands what it was like to live in this world, to live in the midst of the filth, the sin, that because our Lord Jesus dwelt here in our midst, became like us, he understands. It is a sympathetic mediator. So, Lord, we pray that we would turn to him. Give us that desire each day again. And as we do, may we be abundantly encouraged and comforted in the midst of life's temptations. Receive our praises as we conclude. We give you praise. We love you. We worship you. We thank you that we may call you our God through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.